Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you that you care about the whole of our lives. That you're not a God who requires us to be to live in denial about anything that we experience. Lord, we thank you that in a world where we're often forced to put a brave face on things, uh, where we feel obligated at times to artificially uh, be cheery and happy, thank you that your word is a place that's honest and real. And thank you for what you've shown us over these past weeks in the book of Job. We pray that you'd be with us now one last time this morning, these next minutes. Come and, and teach us more of yourself. Uh, give us strength as we know more of you, uh, that we might know more of how you call us to live as your people today. Amen. This week, as you know, marked the 75th anniversary of the Bangor Worldwide uh, Missionary Convention. Uh, some of you may have had a chance to be over last Sunday at the service in Bangor or one of the other gatherings during the week. Uh, some of you were maybe at the Waterfront Hall last Saturday night when there was a big uh, opening celebration. I didn't get a chance to get along last Saturday, but I, I did get a chance to hear uh, an edited version of that celebration event uh, on the iPlayer this week. Uh, Fanta Clark, Bishop Ken Clark, when he was introducing the event and giving a little bit of the background, he, he read a list of some of the, the well-known missionary speakers who have spoken at Bangor Worldwide in the last years. He talked about Watchman Nee, Oswald Smith, Gladys Aylward, Richard Vermbrandt, and Brother Andrew were a few of the names that I picked out uh, of those that he mentioned. Why has that got anything to do with the, the book of Job? Well, as I was preparing for this morning's service, I was reminded of the title of a book by one of those visiting speakers at Bangor Worldwide, Watchman Nee, a famous Chinese Christian who suffered much persecution. He, he wrote what's become a modern-day Christian classic, The Normal Christian Life. In a sense, it doesn't sound like a very exciting title when you think of some of the titles of our modern Christian books. They're a bit more full-blown and uh, dynamic, perhaps, than that. But when you think about it, it's, it's a great title and a great subject for a book. What is the normal Christian life? What ought we to expect, those of us who have committed ourselves to Jesus Christ and to following him? I think that every time that we come to God's word and think about it together, each time we look, it'll contribute something more to our understanding of the normal Christian life. And, and I hope that's been your experience this summer in the book of Job. Our second reading this morning from chapter 5 and verse 11, or chapter 5 of James, focusing on the verses round verse 11, I think it confirms our understanding that the book of Job ought to contribute to our understanding of the normal Christian life. Because Job, or James, when he's writing to, to believers, those who have responded to Jesus Christ, he points them to the story of Job. And he says in verse 11, As you know, 
we consider blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. So the so James, when he wants to teach a bunch of new Christians what they ought to expect in their life with God, part of what he says is to say, look at Job. Look at what happened there. Remember that story. This morning we're going to use that short verse, James 5.11, as a, a framework to, to recapture, I hope, most of what we've learned in the book of Job. James focuses there on two people. He talks about Job, who perseveres, and he talks about the Lord, who's full of compassion and mercy. That's what we're going to think about for a few moments this morning, Job and the Lord. Let's begin with Job's perseverance. If you did take any time at all to read the book of Job, and you heard Job's speeches and the way he engaged with God, you'll realize that his perseverance wasn't a passive thing. He didn't just sit there and let life happen to him. Job was always up and at it. He was always telling God what, is, what was on his heart, his frustrations, his, the questions that he needed to have answered. He, he was a, a passionate, engaged individual. So that's the way in which he persevered. But I want to point out two aspects of his perseverance. First of all, it was perseverance in warfare. We've seen in the book of Job that there's a battle going on. And we might be tempted to say that Job is on the battlefield. But actually, it's probably more accurate to say that Job is the battlefield. If you remember back to chapters 1 and 2, we, we learned there about how Satan approached the Lord and asked if he could attack Job to prove the genuineness of his faith. And the Lord allowed these attacks. So there's a battle raging right throughout the book of Job, but it's raging in Job. He himself is the battlefield. And let's be clear one last time. Job suffers not in spite of being a believer. He, remember, suffers because he is a believer. We saw that in Job 1 and 2. Do you remember the Lord looked out on the earth? He saw Job, who above all others was righteous and feared God, and then Satan attacked him precisely for this reason. So that we've got to be clear about this. The book of Job's not really about human suffering in general. It's better understood as, as a look at the suffering of those who, who believe, those who are committed to life with God and who suffer as a result. It's a strange thing. I think the way we think about Christian faith, it's, it's a bit counterintuitive to think, if I commit myself to following God, I'm going to suffer. But yet, if, if we took a step back and looked at the witness of Scripture, I, I think it's, it's pretty widespread teaching. And Jesus, as always, is the, he, he is, he is the, the one who embodies this most of all. Jesus' life was, was a life of suffering. You'll remember as a toddler, Herod tried to kill him. If you think of the, the hardship and the, the persecution that he suffered right throughout his life in his, his public ministry, think of how Satan had tempted him in the desert. Think of the, the moments in the garden and finally on the cross where, where Satan 
had a, a full frontal attack on Jesus. Jesus' soul was, was troubled in this life. He experienced temptation, discouragement, loneliness, betrayal, misunderstanding, agony. So Jesus Christ experienced all of the warfare that, that we're thinking of and, and that we've seen in the life of Job. But there's another step. Jesus didn't expect anything different for us. It's not just this is how it was for Job and this is how it was for Jesus. This is the normal Christian life. I want you to turn with me to Luke chapter 22, a passage where Jesus is speaking. Luke 22 on page 1058. I'll give you a moment to flick that up. Page 1058, Job, or Luke chapter 22. Luke's telling us at this point in his gospel about Jesus' conversation with his disciples in the upper room shortly before his betrayal and his death. Look at verse 31. He tells them in verse 31, Satan has asked to sift you. And the you there is plural, so he's talking to all the guys. Guys, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, so it's in the singular this time, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Do you see what's going on at this pivotal moment in the life of Jesus and his disciples? Much as he did in Job chapter 1 and 2, where Satan came and asked permission of the Lord, can I get at Job? In a way that we can't quite be party to, Satan has asked permission to get at Jesus' disciples in these last hours. And how does Jesus respond? Does he say no? I won't allow it. Does he stand between Satan and the disciples as he easily could have done and prevent that sifting from happening? No, he doesn't do that. Instead, he expects that Satan will get what he asks for, that he will be allowed to test these disciples and to sift them. And what Jesus prays for in the end is that their faith, or Simon's faith, will stand the test. So Jesus doesn't choose to prevent his followers from knowing this kind of attack from Satan. Friends, we ought to expect warfare in our normal Christian life. We ought to wake up every day and recognize that this is a day where I am engaged in, in a vicious and spiritual battle that's being waged in me and around me. Satan is very busy in this earth. He still looks over this earth. He still looks for those who fear God and who live righteous lives. And he, he still seeks God's permission. Let me at him. Let me at her. I want to prove that he's a real believer. And in one way or another that, that I don't claim to understand, 
the Lord gives this permission. We shouldn't be surprised by that. It's the witness of Job. It's the witness of Jesus. It's the witness of the New Testament. Trials, warfare, are part of the normal Christian life. Job persevered in warfare, but he persevered in a second way, in waiting. Look at verse 7 of Job 42. After the Lord had said these things to Job, he said to Eliphaz the Temanite, I'm angry with you and your friends because you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. In a way, we should be surprised by, by what the Lord is saying here. Not, not surprised that he's unhappy with the friends uh, because I think we saw the, certainly the limited help that Job's friends were able to be with him. I think the more surprising thing is that that the Lord affirms what Job said. Job said some pretty hard things about God. He said that the Lord had done wrong. Uh, that's, that's both a serious thing to say and it's something that's untrue. But somehow the Lord still says that Job had spoken right of him. So let's think about that for a second. Job's friends said a lot of things that were right. Uh, if you were here this Sunday when we thought specifically about their role in the book, we said, you know, if you read their speeches, there's a lot of stuff where you could put ticks in the margin and say, yeah, in the abstract or on its own, that what you're saying is right. You'll remember the main weakness with these guys was that they, they had it all packaged into a nice, comfortable theology, a system. Job, you're suffering. Job, good people don't suffer. Job, you must have sinned. It was a tidy system that satisfied them entirely. But the problem was they didn't have any emotional engagement with this. At no point do we see them looking for God in all of it. These guys were the kind of guys who were so clear about God and who God is and what God thinks that they didn't need God. They had it all sorted. There was no desperation in them to know the real and living and, and intervening presence of God. Job, on the other hand, he, he just can't be satisfied with these easy, twee answers to his complex problems. He, he can't settle for a system. He wants to know God, he wants to speak to God, and he wants God to explain himself. Nothing else is going to satisfy Job. I find something very comforting in the end that the Lord can affirm Job after some of the things that Job has said. It's as though God can do that, that thing where you can read between the lines and see a person's heart. I think that's what's going on here. I think the Lord can see uh, Job's heart. Folks, we've already said that we ought to expect warfare in the normal Christian life, but we should also expect the normal Christian life to be full of unresolved waiting and yearning. That is the mark of a believer. Sometimes uh, Christian people become sort of fatalists. Uh, we say whatever will be, will be. We ought not to say that 
or at least not demean it. I, I'm pretty sure I would say that sometimes. But I hope what I mean by that isn't really whatever will be, will be. But rather something along the lines of whatever, whatever the Lord is doing here. My, my maker, uh, the one who loves me, I want to see what he's doing here. Where is he in all this? If only I could see it. If only he would show himself to me. So we want to learn from Job to persevere in warfare and in waiting. We're going to spend just the last few moments thinking about the Lord, his compassion and his mercy. In chapter 5, verse 11, James says, you have seen what the Lord finally brought about, that is in the life of Job. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. I wonder, as you've read Job and been party to, to our studies here, are those the first words that would spring to mind when you think of how God dealt with Job? What's James talking about? How could you describe what God has done with Job as being full of compassion and mercy? In chapter 42, I think we finally begin to see some answers. Three, three very quick aspects of the compassion and mercy of God. First of all, in verses 1 to 6, which we didn't read today, God loves Job enough to humble him. After God had spoken in chapters 38 to 41, Job responds with a few words and with silent awe. He, he gives two short speeches in chapter 40, verses 4 and 5, and then in 42, 1 to 6. Look at chapter 42, verse 6. It sort of summarizes it. He says, Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Now that might not sound like a good thing. For Job to be brought so low and to think so little of himself and so much of God actually is a good thing. What's not a good thing, folks, is if a person looks around themselves at other people in a gathering like this or in their workplace or in their neighborhood, and if in relation to other people they find they have a very low self-esteem or sense of self-worth, that is not good. And that should never be mistaken for the posture that we should have before God. There's no benefit to any of that. But for a person to be brought down before the living and true God and to recognize how small I am and how huge and awesome he is. That is simply to recognize the truth of the universe. That is to live in step with the way things really are. And if that's what's happened here for Job, then that is a good thing. Do you ever pray for that? That God will humble you? I don't. We pray for success, health, wealth. And yet these are very often the things that take us away from God. Success can easily lead to pride, to self-confidence, 
And self-confidence can lead to independence from God. Do you know where independence from God finishes? It finishes in the place where God is not. This is a way of life that leads us to hell. Friends, the most deeply compassionate thing that God can do for any one of us is to humble us. To bring us to a place where we're in a right relationship with him. First mark of God's compassion. He loves us enough to humble us. The second mark of God's compassion on Job is his acceptance. This is what Job's been wanting all along. Do you remember Job didn't know what was going on? He wanted to know that he was right before God, that he could be vindicated, that he was acceptable to God. And God does this wonderfully in three ways at the end of this book. In verse 7, he says that Job has spoken rightly of him, whereas his friends have not. Three times, once in verse 7 and twice in verse 8, God calls Job my servant. It's exactly the same phrase that he uses for the great Moses, for many of the prophets. God is saying, this guy is great. He's one of my top guys. And there's a lovely reversal there. I don't know if you you picked up on it. Job's friends are told to go to Job and that he will pray for them. Now, if we had been Job's friends, and this had happened in our church life, if there was some guy in our church life who was going through a hard time, who was given off a lot about God, and if we had been the ones who had been walking alongside him, telling him, listen, don't say all that bad stuff about God, uh, if we were the ones trying to stick up for God, we'd expect God to say something very different. We'd expect God to come to us and say, listen, I want you three, because you're righteous, to go around and pray for Job one last time. But God does the exact opposite. And that shows us once and finally that the one who's accepted here is Job. Job is the righteous man whose prayer can do much. And he ends up praying for all these other guys who have been sticking up for God all the way through. God makes it clear that he he accepts Job. Brother and sister here today, are you in Jesus Christ? Are you in a right relationship with God through his son? If you are, please know that one day God will fully vindicate you. Before a watching world, before your family and your friends and your colleagues and all people who wonder what you're about and wonder what the point of it all is, he will vindicate you. Before before Satan himself, he will say, this one is mine. She belongs to me. She's my honored servant. Can you think of a greater mark of God's compassion than for him to look on you and to say, he's mine. She's mine. God humbles Job. 
he accepts him. And then finally, God blesses him. Before Job's life fell apart, he'd been extremely wealthy. You can reread that part at the very start of chapter 1. But in verse 10 of chapter 42, we're told that the Lord gave him twice as much as he had before. And then the verses show that it really was twice as much. Whatever number of cattle he had, it was twice as many, and so on. So God restored his prosperity. God brought celebration back into his life. His family and his friends come and they gather with him in verse 11. It's the first mention of a party since chapter 1, verse 4. God gives Job a bigger family. So there's blessing in the end. And I wonder what we are to make of all this. Notice, first of all, that Job was restored to a relationship with God before the other blessings were given. We've seen Job in the opening verses of chapter 42 falling humbly and worshipping God. And it's before God's given him a single thing. He's still on the ash heap, scraping himself in misery. Job doesn't worship God because God gives him all this stuff back again. He worships God because he's met with the true and living God. And God's blessings come after that. The most important thing, I think, to see about the blessing is that it comes at the end. And James has understood this in in those verses that we have been looking at this morning. In chapter 5, verse 7, James urges the early Christians, Be patient then until the Lord's return. We'll only ever fully and finally understand God's purposes and know his full blessing in our lives in the end. Friends, just to, to sum it up, and with this I'm finishing. We've seen today that this normal Christian life is one of warfare and of waiting. It's one where God humbles us and accepts us. We can expect all of these things, I think, in the here and now. We can expect those all in this life. But we have no certainty of God's blessing, his full blessing until the end. Don't misunderstand me. We, we experience a lot of God's blessing on our way through life. Um, sometimes I'm overwhelmed when I try to, to consider just how much good God has done me and given me in my life. But we have to wait till the end for the full experience of all that God wants to give us. I wonder how you think of those blessings that lie ahead. I, I can't help but think that we have a very low expectation of what God's going to give us and do for us. Sometimes we over-spiritualize this. It becomes a very ethereal, otherworldly thing that we think, you know, we think heaven's going to be like an endless church service or, or songs of praise on repeat for eternity. Christopher Ashe in his commentary on Job suggests that, that the blessings that God's preparing for us are every bit as real as the ones Job received at the end of this book. God gave Job real prosperity, real joy, real celebration, real family life, and real beauty. I don't know if you noticed that. We always think of beauty as a luxury, something that's added 
after the necessity of life's taken care of. God puts the beauty in there. Look at Job's daughters. Verse 15, they were the most beautiful women in all the land. Beauty to burn. This is who God is. These blessings of God, they're rock solid and real. The beauty God is preparing for us is it'll make Miss World look dull. A family life that will make the Waltons look dysfunctional. We'll have wealth that'll have Bill Clint or, or Bill Gates, sorry, coming to us asking if we can spot him some cash for the weekend. And we'll be at a party that makes the best party in the world seem like a flat coke. Folks, I I think it's only the limits of our imaginations that limits the, the life that God is, is calling us to and the blessing that he wants to pour out on us. We're, we're done with Job. And I suppose as I summarize, I just want to ask you, have, have we got a little bit of this over these last couple of months? Have we a, a fuller picture of what to expect in the normal Christian life Yes, there will be warfare. And there will be waiting. And sometimes the waiting will threaten to break our hearts. And God will humble us. But we must be in no doubt that in Christ Jesus, he accepts us fully and finally. And that he's preparing to bless us beyond our wildest dreams. let's come and and pray and speak to this God who does us so much good. Let's pray. Father God, in our best moments, we understand that lives of ease and prosperity and wall-to-wall blessing are not conducive to our growing, maturing in you. Lord, we know that left to our own devices, we become selfish, preoccupied with the wrong things and distracted from the important things. Lord, we thank you that you love us enough to intervene in our lives. That you love us enough to work in our persons and on our character. Lord, we want to pray a brave prayer this morning. We want to welcome your work in our lives. Whatever it might be, if only it would make us more like Jesus richer and deeper in you. Lord, come and work in us and through us, we pray. Lord, we want to trust you, that you accept us wonderfully and that you're preparing to bless us in the end. We pray it in Jesus' name.